This morning we continue our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and so grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 6, and if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please grab a Bible from in front of you, and you can find Mark chapter 6 on page 841. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 6. Let us hear the word of God and continue to worship him as we hear his word. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among, about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come this morning, we... Come gathering as your people confessing. And we confess this. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. We are amazed at your power and your might and your glory this morning. We confess there is no God like you. You are unrivaled. You stand above the heavens and the earth. You created them all and you rule over all of them by your word. You are the sovereign God. And we confess this morning you are also a God of mercy and grace and kindness and you shower your mercy and grace and kindness on sinners. You are a God who acts for those who wait And so, Father, we wait upon you this morning. We look to you. We look nowhere else for no other person or being or thing can save or act for us. You are the God who saves. You are the God who acts in history. And we have beheld your mighty deeds recorded in the scriptures. How you created all things out of nothing. How your promise came to Abram how you rescued a people from Egypt, how you restored a people back to the land of promise, how you sent forth your son, how he died and how he was raised, how he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and how one day he will indeed return again. You are the God who acts. Father, we look to you this morning. We wait for you to act today. We ask you specifically this morning to overcome unbelief. 
overcome prideful, unbelieving hearts and cause us to submit and bend our knees to Jesus once again. This is our plea. And so, Father, we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark has a clear message that it announces. It announces the arrival of a person. And that person is the Christ, the Son of God. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, we hear this booming voice coming from heaven and it captures our attention. The voice says, this is my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And throughout the pages of Mark's gospel, as we've worked through them bit by bit the last months, the presence of this beloved Son is tangibly felt. The Son of God has arrived with power and authority. After Jesus taught in Capernaum, the crowds questioned with amazement. They said this, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And the reverberations of Jesus' appearance continue to be felt as Jesus works his ministry throughout Israel. After forgiving and healing the paralytic, the crowds cheer. They say, We never saw anything like this. And after the stilling of the violent waves and the blowing winds, Jesus' disciples questioned in fear, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And these displays of power and might from Jesus continue to come at us as we work through Mark's gospel. In chapter 5, Jesus conquered the strong forces of Satan with just his word. And the evidence is placed before us in dramatic fashion. 2,000 dead pigs floating in the sea. Jesus is almighty. Even more in the case of Jairus' daughter, Jesus displays his great power over death itself. Jesus says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And these mighty miracles and mighty deeds displayed and recorded for us in the first five chapters of Mark's gospel have not been written down for our sake of entertainment. Rather, these mighty deeds and miracles are revelatory vehicles. Just as your car and truck are not your destination, you get into your car, you get into your truck to go somewhere, so too these mighty deeds, these miracles recorded in the first five chapters of Mark's gospel are not our destination point. Our attention must not terminate upon them. They are driving us somewhere. They are pushing us towards a great conclusion. And Mark records these miracles about Jesus, these mighty deeds of Jesus, so that our faith in who Jesus is would be confirmed and strengthened. And this relationship between miracle and identity is embedded in our text. As Jesus continues to work miracle after miracle, as he continues to work mighty deed after mighty deed, the questions about Jesus sharpen and come into clear focus. We move from the question of the crowds in Capernaum saying, what is this? A rather abstract question about authority. To the question of Jesus' disciples after Jesus calms the sea. Who then is this? Finally, we come to a set of questions in our text this morning. Chapter 6, verse 2. The people in Nazareth say, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
And here they are questioning the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the relationship of Jesus, the source of Jesus' ministry. And these questions about Jesus, what is this? Who then is this? Where did this man get these things? Do not go unanswered. In Mark's story, we meet all sorts of characters. We meet people who are rich, and we meet people who are poor. We meet people who live in populous cities like Jerusalem, and we meet people who live in small little rural villages like Nazareth. We meet people who are trained in the scriptures, who are are professional exegetes, and we meet common folk. And while we have met all sorts of these people with all of these differences, we can divide all of these people into two groups based on the issue of faith. Those who believe and those who don't. And each group responds in a distinctive way to these questions. Those marked by disbelief behold the mighty deeds of Jesus and say, He is out of his mind. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Those marked by disbelief behold the mighty deeds of the Lord Jesus and then plot to destroy him like the scribes. Those of unbelief behold the mighty deeds of Jesus and then beg Jesus to depart from their country like the pig herders we meet in chapter 5. But there's a second group, a people who respond to Jesus in a completely different way, a people of faith. These people come to Jesus and they sit at his feet, taking in his good words. These people of faith receive the seed of the sower and bear good and abiding fruit. There are people of faith who beg Jesus that they might be with him, that they might remain with him. There's a people of faith that grab hold of Jesus. They they grab his garments and when they grab his garments in faith, they find salvation forevermore. And Mark teaches throughout his gospel that the great dividing line in humanity is this issue of faith. All will stand, whether you are rich or poor, whether you live in the populous city of Jerusalem or in the town of Nazareth, all will stand or fall in how they answer these questions. What is this? Who then is this? Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And Mark has been instructing us in how to answer these questions. And only one acceptable answer can be found. And it's found in the first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the only acceptable answer to come to. To confess that Jesus is the Christ. And even more importantly, he is the Son of God. So we look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and we have to ask, what does our text, these verses before us, have to do with the great issues of belief and unbelief? And how does this passage contribute to the life of the church? And we have an answer this morning. Just as Mark in chapter 5 gave us the stories We heard the story of Jairus and how Jesus raised his little daughter. We heard the story of the unnamed woman with the flow of blood and how she reached out to Jesus and found salvation as she grasped hold of him. He gave us those stories, these two stories, to instruct us and encourage us in biblical faith. 
And Mark is doing something similar in this text. Mark has placed the story of Jesus' hometown before us to instruct us in the matter of unbelief and to gravely warn us against this great sin. And so our plan this morning is to work through Mark's instruction and warning about unbelief in three phases. And the three phases are these. They're rather simple. The first being the issue of unbelief. The second being the heart of unbelief. And lastly, the tragedy of unbelief. So we can begin by honing in on the issue of unbelief. What is unbelief all about? And so our text begins in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Look there with me. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So according to verses 1 through 2, Jesus has now left the area of Capernaum and the coast of the Sea of Galilee, where he had done many mighty works, where he had been preaching and casting out demons and, and healing sick people, and now returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And this trip back home would have been roughly about 25 miles of walking. Now, Nazareth was not a big, nor was it a prestigious town. Nazareth was a small rural village situated in the hills of Israel, consisting of about 500 people or so. And surely the reputation of Jesus and the rumor of Jesus' ministry in and around Capernaum had gotten back to his hometown. Surely these people that knew Jesus so well heard of his preaching and the many mighty deeds that he performed, the casting out of demons, the healing of sick. You can just imagine in a, in a small town of 500 people how the word traveled from house to house, from family to family. What is this Jesus doing? And so in light of this reputation, they give Jesus the honor to teach on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. They want to hear Jesus for themselves, this hometown prodigy. And this is where the controversy between Jesus and his hometown begins, when they hear the preaching of Jesus for themselves. Verse 2 records their reaction. And many who heard him, who heard him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And if we skim down to the end of verse 3, we hear their verdict about Jesus' preaching, what they really think. And they took offense at him. So what is the issue of contention here? What is the issue of unbelief? And here we have to zero in on the preaching of Jesus. What would Jesus have been preaching about that day in Nazareth as he ministered, as he stood up to speak in the synagogue of his hometown? Well, I think we can assume that Jesus would have been preaching the same message that he was preaching in Capernaum and around Galilee. The message that we hear in chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. But we can ask, what is so offensive about this preaching? Jesus is consciously preaching good news to these people. He's preaching the return of their covenant God. He's preaching about the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching about grace and mercy for the downtrodden. All good things. But these people in Nazareth understood something very important about Jesus' preaching. 
They understood in these words, in, these, in this preaching, Jesus was articulating something about himself. We could say that Jesus' preaching was, was self-involved. So we can go to Luke chapter 4 this morning, and Luke helps shed some light on this situation. Luke records the same scene. He says this, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, and, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Jesus is going to be preaching, he's going to be reading, he's speaking, and what does he say? Well, Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah and turns to Isaiah 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and receiving of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And again, Jesus proclaims all good things, good news, liberty, sight. But the issue terminates upon this controversial point. After reading from Isaiah and closing the scroll, Jesus says this in their hearing, today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me He has anointed me. He has sent me. What Jesus says about himself in Luke chapter 4 should take our our breath away. The reign of God, the blessings of God, the grace and mercy of God are solely mediated through this man who speaks up in Luke chapter 4, through the Spirit-filled Son, through Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus' hometown found so offensive. These people knew Jesus from the days of his childhood. They played with Jesus. They learned with Jesus. They worked with Jesus. They raised Jesus. They worshiped with Jesus. And now this one from Nazareth. He claims to be the unique servant of the Lord. He claims to be the Messiah of God. He claims to be the Son of God. But these people, Jesus' neighbors, his family, his, his friends were shrouded in the darkness of unbelief. And their unbelief is revealed in two ways to us in the text. Their first way of unbelief is revealed in that they would not accept the identity of Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God. They were scandalized by his preaching. Instead of making good confession, they spoke in unbelief. They they questioned and said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Are not his sisters here with us? And second, they would not treat Jesus according to his title, his identity. These people would not bow a knee to Jesus. They would not humbly seek salvation from him. Rather, as Luke graphically tells us in his story of Jesus, they attempted to throw Jesus off of a cliff. And so as we look into this text this morning, if we're careful to listen, Mark is giving us a definition of what unbelief is. And it's this. Unbelief is the stubborn refusal to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and live before him as such. Unbelief is the stubborn refusal to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and live before him as such. 
And so with that definition before us, we can ask ourselves, how can we test ourselves for this unbelief? How can we know if what infected Jesus' hometown, what plagued these people in Nazareth, has infected our own hearts this morning? We can test ourselves in, in two ways this morning. We can test ourselves in the matter of orthodoxy, saying the right things about Jesus, and in the matter of orthopraxy, living the right way before Jesus. So we can say this, in terms of orthodoxy, saying the right things about Jesus, we have to say it is crucially important. The difference between saying the right things about Jesus and saying the wrong things about Jesus is the difference between life and death, between salvation and judgment. We can go outside the Gospel of Mark and notice how the Apostle Paul links salvation to the issue of orthodoxy. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And Paul is giving weight. He's giving radical weight to the issue of orthodoxy, saying the right things about Jesus. Salvation, Paul says, hinges upon giving a good confession. And we must notice how John the Apostle ties judgment to the issue of heterodoxy, which is saying the wrong things about Jesus. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And what John is saying is if you say the wrong things about Jesus, if you believe the wrong things about Jesus, you don't have God. You don't have salvation. And so we can say unbelief will manifest itself in the fact it will not speak truthfully about Jesus. It will not speak truthfully about Jesus' identity, his being the Christ the Son of God. It will not speak honestly and truthfully about his accomplishments. And so to say the wrong things about Jesus reveals a heart of unbelief. But orthodoxy gives way to a much more convicting reality, and that's orthopraxy, living the right way before Jesus. Salvation does not only hinge upon what we say about Jesus, but also how we live before Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. So how can we know if we're walking in unbelief or if there's a root of unbelief in our hearts? Well, unbelief is evidence when our actions, when our deeds do not reflect the truth of who Jesus is. Unbelief is manifested when our actions do not match the commands of Christ. Unbelief is realized when we do not imitate the Christ who beckons us Follow me, conform your life to my image. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus always is always pressing the issue of orthopraxy, living the right way before him. Those who are saved do not only confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, but they confess with their whole lives, their whole bodies that Jesus is Lord. Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we go back to our text, Mark chapter 6. And the unbelief in Jesus' hometown is clear. It's manifestly clear. And their response to Jesus in chapter 6 categorically denies the realities that we have come to know about Jesus from Mark chapter 1. It's really interesting when we, when we contrast Mark chapter 6 with Mark chapter 1. While we learn in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Spirit-filled Son, that the, the Spirit descended upon Jesus to empower His ministry, the crowds question and deny this reality. They say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Well, we learn in chapter 1 that Jesus has been given this honorific title, this glorious title, the Christ, the Son of God. The crowds question and deny this reality. They say in doubt, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And as we learned in chapter 1, the attitude of the Father towards the Spirit-filled Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The hometown of Jesus comes to a starkly different conclusion. They found no pleasure in this Jesus. They took offense at him. And when we finally come to Jesus' words in verse 4, Jesus clearly articulates the type of reception he received in Nazareth. Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. But as keen readers of the gospel story, we have to realize that verse 4 does not only apply to, to Nazareth, but ultimately applies to the whole of Israel. Just as Jesus' neighbors, friends, and relatives rejected him that day as he, as he entered into the town and began preaching in the synagogue, so too the nation of Israel at large will reject him. And as sensitive readers of Mark's gospel, we are led from verse 4, from the small town of Nazareth, to just outside Jerusalem, where Jesus will find his ultimate rejection, the cross. And John chapter 1, verse 11 applies well here. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Mark is telling a story about rejection. Jesus comes to his hometown and is rejected. Ultimately, Jesus comes to his own people, the nation of Israel, and he is rejected. And this narrative, this story of rejection that Mark tells us raises an important question that we have to consider. Here is the Christ. Here's the one to whom all the prophets in the Old Testament point. Here is Jesus, the one empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here is Jesus, one who preaches with unparalleled authority, who casts out demons and and who heals the sick. Here is Jesus, a man full of mercy and salvation. Why would Nazareth reject him? Why would Israel as a whole reject him? Why would they refuse to give faith? Perhaps we could point to the fact that Jesus' hometown just knew him too well to receive him as the Christ. Familiarity breeds contempt. But we cannot settle for a surface-level explanation of these people's unbelief. And here we have to dig down into the heart of the matter. 
And we can build upon our definition of unbelief. Mark is instructing us. He says, Unbelief stubbornly refuses to confess and live before Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because it issues from a heart that is full of pride. The unbelieving heart is a prideful heart. The reason why Jesus' neighbors, the reason why Jesus' friends and, and family did not receive Jesus was because their hearts were full of pride. We know better. The Christ, he cannot be a humble carpenter. The Son of God surely would not come from, from Mary. Surely the Savior could not be the brother of James or Joses or Judas or Simon. Surely the promised one would not have sisters that are here with us. And what plagues Jesus' hometown is the very issue that has been wrong with humanity from the very beginning. Why did Adam and Eve disobey in the garden? They were surrounded with the good gifts of God. You read the Genesis account, good gift after good gift after good gift. Even though they're surrounded with all of these gifts, when temptation came their way, they reasoned when the tempter came, surely we know better than this God. Or we can look at Israel. Why did Israel grumble in the wilderness? They experienced the salvation of the Lord. They saw the Lord trample over chariots. They saw dead bodies scattered floating in the sea. They saw the ten plagues. And even though they saw all of these things, when temptation came their way, when their stomachs were hungry, when they were thirsty, they reasoned, surely we know better than this God. And this reveals our own hearts this morning. When we say the wrong things about Jesus or when we live the wrong way before Jesus, it isn't ultimately because of a lack of ignorance or, or education. It's because we don't know something. Rather, it's rather, when we say the wrong things about Jesus and when we live the wrong way before Jesus, it is because our heart is full of pride. We just like Jesus' hometown, like Adam and Eve, like Israel, say, we know better. And this is the fundamental and reoccurring problem of humanity. We are a people who hear God's word and then render this verdict. We know better. But Jesus comes, and he comes preaching a message, and he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel makes a distinct demand upon us in our state of unbelief. When Jesus preaches, repent and believe in the gospel, he demands that we come down from our judge's bench, that we finally leave our gavel behind, that we take off our, our black robes, and we kneel before this Jesus, we submit ourselves to his good word, and we stop saying, I know better, and start saying, you know better. The gospel calls us to a humble faith, taking Jesus at his words. This moves us to our, our third aspect of unbelief. So where does this all lead the people of Nazareth, what comes to these people who don't, do not believe Jesus? Well, it leads to great tragedy. Look at verses 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Mark, in these two verses, makes a clear connection between Jesus' mighty works 
and the people's faith. Because Jesus did not practice, because these people did not practice faith, they would not render faith to Jesus, Jesus, as Mark says, could not perform a mighty work there. And so we have to question Mark here as good readers of the gospel. What does this connection mean? Is Mark implying that the Lord Jesus' power and authority are in some way dependent upon our faith? Is Mark implying that Jesus in Nazareth could not act of his own will and accord? Is Mark teaching that Jesus' power is subservient to the will of sinful beings? These are important questions to consider. And to answer these questions, we have to cast our eyes to the context of the gospel of Mark and let the whole gospel counsel us. Jesus, as the Son of God, clearly does the things that only God can do. Jesus, by his word and his word alone, forgives sins. Jesus, by his word and his word alone, casts out demons. Jesus, by his word and his word alone, rules over the wind and the sea, things only God can do. So Mark is teaching us something about Jesus. Jesus' word is sovereign and authoritative, just like God's word. And when we look to the rest of the New Testament, we hear the stunning confession of who Jesus is, his power and authority above all things. We go to the Gospel of John and we hear about the supremacy of Jesus over absolutely everything. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the book of Hebrews preaches the supremacy of Christ over everything. The author says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds unbelievers by the word of His power. He upholds those who refuse to render faith by the word of His power. Or we go to Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 and John says, He is the ruler of kings on earth. He has supreme dominion over all. And if we hold to the wide teaching of Scripture, we cannot limit Jesus' powerful, sovereign authority. As God, Jesus properly holds all, all power. As God, Jesus properly holds all authority. As God, Jesus properly asserts sovereign dominion over all. And thus we have to reason, in light of the wider reading of Scripture, Jesus' will cannot be thwarted by unbelief. Jesus' power cannot be dependent in any way upon belief or unbelief. But Mark says, he could do no mighty work there, and he marveled at their unbelief. How do we square the testimony of the scriptures here? What does Mark mean? Again, Jesus' miracles and mighty deeds have not been written down for the sake of entertainment. This is how we started this morning. Rather, these mighty deeds are revelatory vehicles. They're intended to drive us somewhere. They're intended to push us towards a conclusion about who Jesus is. And Jesus performs these miracles, these mighty deeds, so that our faith would would be confirmed and strengthened in him. Mark records these mighty deeds so that we might boldly say this, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus did no mighty work in Nazareth. In fact, he could do no mighty work there because his mighty works would not serve their purpose. Because Jesus' hometown refused to receive him as the Christ, the Son of God, because they refused to humble themselves before him, because they refused to cling to Christ as the only means of salvation, any miracles, 
any mighty deeds done in Nazareth would have only been a waste of time. Miracles and mighty deeds do not serve any redemptive purpose for the unbeliever. They are intended to strengthen and encourage faith. And this is where we encounter the great tragedy of unbelief. Because Jesus' neighbors, friends, and family would not believe his word or submit themselves to his preaching, they could not taste the goodness of God's kingdom. They could not share in the blessings of the kingdom. They could not feast upon Jesus' good words and and take him as their salvation and cling to his, his righteous robes. And we see the tragedy of unbelief revealed throughout the pages of the scriptures. Adam and Eve refused to believe and humble themselves before the word of God. So the whole human race was plunged into death and exile. Israel refused to believe and humble themselves before the word of God. So they occupied a wilderness of death for 40 years where an entire generation perished. And the people of Nazareth refused to believe and humble themselves before the word of God. And so these people were excluded from the gracious reign of God, the glorious kingdom of God. And Mark writes, so that we might be warned this morning. And warnings, we have to be clear, are just as important for the Christian life as encouragements are. And the scriptures are filled with warnings for for good reason. If you read the scriptures carefully, you will find warnings placed everywhere in the Old Testament, in the New, and almost every book of the Bible. God gives us warnings so that our minds would be sobered. Warnings work to free us from folly. They settle our souls and place our feet upon a firm reality. They reveal the utter seriousness of which this life is to be lived. And they reveal that we serve a God of justice. A God who will actually mete out judgment. And so as God's people this morning, we must be diligent in taking Mark's warning to heart. We have to reckon with ourselves. Faith in Christ leads to real inclusion. Faith in Christ leads to real blessedness in the kingdom of God. Faith in Christ leads to a real salvation. Just as the woman with the flow of blood reached out in faith and grabbed hold of Jesus' garment, there is a real salvation for us. We have to reckon unbelief leads to real exclusion from Christ. Unbelief leads to a real exclusion from all of Christ's benefits. Unbelief leads to real exclusion from the, from the goodness of the kingdom of God, from the forgiveness of sins. And so we must be faithful to remember Nazareth and the utter tragedy of their unbelief. And Mark gives us this story that the story might weigh us down and bring us back to reality, that it might sober us. And even more importantly, that we might examine ourselves in light of this story. In light of this story, we must look at our orthodoxy. What are we saying about Jesus? Does it match what the scriptures say about Jesus? And it calls us to examine our own orthopraxy. Are we living appropriately in light of the Christ, the Son of God? Do my ways conform to his will? Do my deeds conform to his law? And if not, it reveals a a heart of unbelief. And so, brothers and sisters, where do we go from here? What do we do with this hard word that Mark gives us? 
Well, we have an answer, and we can turn from Mark to Psalm 95. And here the Savior addresses us in unbelief. And he calls us to to shun all forms of unbelief. And he comes to us and he says this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. And Jesus says to us, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or as Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe in the gospel. And Mark is preaching to us. He says, behold the the marvelous works of Jesus, his miracles, his mighty deeds, his casting out of demons, his stilling of the sea, his raising of a little girl to new life. And let them guide you to give good confession, to say, yes, this one who is revealed in the gospel of Mark, he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And I will indeed live before him faithfully. I will do the will of God of his father. Jesus says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your warnings. We do need your warnings. We need to be brought back to reality. We need to have our feet placed solidly upon the earth. We need to be reminded of the seriousness of which we are to live this life. And so, Father, we ask now that your word would do its good work, that we would be faithful in examining our hearts and shunning all forms of unbelief, and that we would heed Jesus' good word, that we would step down from our judge's bench, that we'd leave behind our gavel, that we'd strip ourselves of our judge's robes, and that we would bend our knee to Jesus, saying, You know better. Oh, Father, would you do this now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.